In 1935, Franklin D. Roosevelt put his signature on the Social Security Act. Social Security. Social Security Act. Hi, this is Eric C. Kahn. This is one of the craziest people who pulled off the biggest scam in the history of the Social Security Administration. If he couldn't help me, nobody could. I guess he perfected a way to screw the government more efficiently than everybody else did. Everybody who came to see him got their benefits and they got them quickly. I thought he was helping me, but at that time he wasn't doing nothing but really fucking me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, just being honest. <laughs> Everybody knew Eric Kahn was Mr. Social Security. From FunMeter, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We are the executive producers and directors of the new four-part documentary series on Apple TV Plus, The Big Con. And yes, all four episodes are available for you to binge right now where available. And this is The Big Con, the official podcast from Apple TV+, a companion piece to the documentary series of the same name. So as we started digging into this story, one of the first things we did was watch a six-hour C-SPAN video over and over again. Yes, you heard that right. And if you don't know... C-SPAN is a television station dedicated to broadcasting United States federal government proceedings and public affairs. It's basically stick-a-fork-in-your-eye-level boring TV. But uh, this six hours, believe it or not, was riveting. And if you've been watching the documentary series, you know what we're talking about. Let's just say it was nearly impossible to include all the things that we found interesting about it. So we're super excited to get into more of it here. Get ready. This is episode three, Whore Doctors. On October 6, 2013, Eric Kahn stood outside of a hotel in Washington, D.C. with Becky Rose by his side. I've never been really in a big, big city like that. And he wanted me to hail a taxi and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like, what do you mean get a taxi? To anyone else, they just look like two tourists on their way out to dinner. And he's like, well, you stand out on the street and you wave your arms and the taxi pulls over. So I do this. And he laughs and he looks at me and he, and he kind of talks like Sling Blade. <laughs> now I got you working the street corner, Becky Rose. And I would tell him that it wouldn't be the first time he tried to whore me out for his own personal gain. <laughs> you know, we were just that wicked. Even on our worst days, we had a blast. Any bystander that evening watching those two giggling on the sidewalk probably would never have guessed that the next day they would be on their way to Capitol Hill to get grilled for six hours before a Senate hearing that was long in the making. Two years earlier, after the Wall Street Journal article ran, Sarah and Jennifer had gone to Washington, D.C. to sit down with two people from the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. By then, investigators from multiple agencies were all over Eric C. Kahn. Here's an excerpt from the doc series. At the time, there was three investigations happening at once. There's little old Damien in his notebook, 
in his old school tape recorder. There's the inspector general's office with all their resources and staff and handcuffs. And then there's the Senate subcommittee that moves more slowly but deliberately. It's not terribly uncommon for us to be looking at the same thing that an inspector general is looking at. Lots of times we'll work with OIGs and ask them to look at things that we're also looking at. But we investigate for different purposes. We're trying to figure out, do we change the law? They're trying to figure out, does somebody go to jail? The Senate investigators do everything that the Office of the Inspector General investigators do. They subpoena records, they interview witnesses, and go down every rabbit hole they think could get them the information they need to be heard before senators. In a way, the hearing is the ultimate investigative finale. Chris Barkley took lead on the Senate investigation. The hearing would be historical for a number of reasons. First of all, some people were exploiting the Social Security program, which Congress hadn't really looked at since they created it in the 1950s. Which is interesting because Social Security is one of the biggest programs the federal government runs. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars that American taxpayers are providing every year for a very important reason. And the goal of the hearing was to lay out the case for why we needed to make sure that stuff like this could never happen again. The hearing would also be historical for an unexpected reason. 13 days before the hearing date, the government had shut down for the first time in 17 years because Congress couldn't agree on the budget. Normally, that would mean all bets are off for when the hearing was supposed to happen. But instead... Members from both sides who were down on the Senate floor fighting with each other had decided that this hearing needed to happen during the government shutdown. Chris hadn't heard of that ever happening before. In the weeks leading up to the hearing, Chris and his team had been in the office 24 hours a day while the rest of Capitol Hill had been dark. By the day of the hearing, they had hundreds of documents on Eric Khan that filled a binder five inches thick. A lot was writing on this day. You don't want to make sure that you finally get a chance to get this story right. Uh, because you feel like you're sitting on um, what we came to find out later was the biggest fraud scam that had ever hit the program in the history uh, decades long. And there's going to be a lot of attention on it. And you want to make sure that we get the right questions asked. The hearing took place at the Dirksen Senate office building. Chris was sitting in the front of the room, just behind Senator Tom Colburn, when the giant wooden doors swung open. And I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a little surreal when Eric Kahn walked in the room. You know, we hadn't been in the same room with him for two years after having conducted investigation. Even in this setting, he uh, is a big presence. You know, he walks in with his very high-powered lawyer and, and a little bit of an entourage. Eric Kahn had lawyered up in a big way. He wanted to make sure that he came into D.C. with one of their own high-powered attorneys. So he hired Abby Lowell, who had represented super elites like Bill Clinton and Jared Kushner. I would imagine that Abby Lowell is not cheap. He's been a big-name attorney in D.C. for a very long time. And uh, we understand that it was important to Mr. Kahn that he have Bill Clinton's lawyer to defend him at his Senate hearing. That's Andy Dockham. He was the other Senate investigator from our series. And he watched right next to Chris as the rest of Khan's team took their seats, including Becky Rose. 
Becky found a spot in the back and looked toward the horseshoe desk that curved around the room, where senators she'd only seen on TV were sitting. I was like a kid, like at a, at a theme park. It was so exciting for me. Even though it was a terrible time, it was also very exciting for me. I was just, God, I was just happy to be there. You know, like my little daddy calling up the whole family going, hey, turn on C-SPAN. Becky's on C-SPAN. It wasn't even TMZ, it was C-SPAN, man. There was no way Eric would have left home without Becky. She had helped him prepare for the hearing every step of the way. Anything he laid eyes on, she had also seen. She was prepared for the hearing to go well for Eric. I was very much convinced that he had never done anything wrong and that basically that they were just going to try to make an example out of him because of who he was and because he was so successful. And that's what I believed probably till almost the bitter end. When the hearing began, Becky sat in the audience behind four women who testified that day. Our first witness is uh, Sarah Carver, a senior case technician at the U.S. Social Security Administration. She works at the Huntington... After eight years, Sarah and Jennifer finally had a big, public, captive audience to tell their story. But Eric and company didn't see it that way. Sarah and Jennifer were... You know, they're like, oh, well, they're these two girls and they caused all this trouble. Not these two girls that blew the whistle on on this huge amount of fraud that was happening. They, They were just troublemakers. Becky's focus wasn't on Sarah and Jennifer, though. It was on the two women who sat on the opposite side of the long table before the senators. Next is Jamie Sloan. She appears today to share her experiences as an employee of the Eric C. Kahn Law Firm. And finally, uh, Melinda L. Martin, former employee at the Kahn Law Firm. Jamie Sloan and Melinda Martin, who is more often referred to as Melinda Hicks, were Becky's former colleagues from Eric Kahn's office. You might remember Melinda, who Eric bragged to about his new girlfriend, Raven O'Reilly. She and Eric used to be best friends. Now she was testifying against him at the Senate hearing. She and Jamie were the last people Becky wanted to see there. Eric, because he could convince me of anything, I I didn't have pity for Jamie and Melinda. I had rage. I had rage. Melinda says she quit because Eric had been pressuring her to do things she didn't want to be involved in. When she walked out, she and Jamie went straight to investigators, revealing what had gone on within the Ericon Law Complex. Between Sarah, Jennifer, Jamie, and Melinda, investigators could piece together the entire puzzle of the scam. Judge Doherty would call once a month and give us a list of claimants, which was known throughout the office as a monthly DB list that he wanted us. Jamie Sloan knew a lot about how Eric and Judge David B. Doherty's relationship worked. In her testimony, she laid out how once a month, Doherty would call Eric Kahn's office and give her a list of 30 to 50 Kahn clients he wanted to make decisions on. And he would indicate that those clients needed either a mental or physical exam. And this was known as the DB list, as in Doherty's initials. Now, a judge calling an attorney's office and handpicking claimants he plans to make a decision on is not how it's supposed to happen. 
But Jamie and Melinda didn't know that. So they'd move those clients along to the next step and schedule them for a doctor's appointment. But not just any doctor. Khan sought out the right ones he liked to work with. Let's hear from the doc series. He referred to those as whore doctors. He said that if they had sanctions and had their license suspended before, that he could get them to do whatever he wanted and they were cheaper to work with. You heard him say that? Yes. And then they zoomed to his face and he said, bullshit. And as for those shady doctors, Eric liked to keep them close so his clients didn't have to travel far. Where would Mr. Khan's clients go when they needed to be seen by a doctor? Eric had a medical wing. Uh Mostly they were seen there. That's right. Khan had his own doctor's office in his Legoland trailer complex. But the only real doctoring happening there was on the medical records. Please look at Exhibit 45. Can you explain how Mr. Khan used this form and others like it? For the physical medical assessment form, um, during the time that I dealt with these, there were 10 different ones. Um, They were just labeled RFC number 1 through 10. Would the doctors fill out the RFCs themselves, or would someone else do that? Someone else did it. Khan used templates of falsified medical records to move the process along faster. After that, the cases would be signed, sealed, and delivered back to Doherty. And then six to eight weeks later, the claimants had their benefits, and Khan got his cut. He could make up to $300,000 on 50 clients. But what was in it for Doherty? Well, there is a theory. Why do you think Judge Doherty would do this? What do you think was going on? Um, Common sense always told us, and, you know, talk of the office was that um, he was paid to do so. Khan paid Judge Doherty. That was the idea that investigators had for some time now, at least. They had found these mysterious cash deposits going into Judge Doherty's account every two weeks, almost $70,000 in total. If Melinda and Jamie could prove that the money was from Eric Kahn, well, Eric could probably be charged as soon as he walked out of the hearing. Let's roll an excerpt from the doc series. The genius of the crime was that it was between Eric and Judge Doherty. And until someone could witness the financial transaction, or until someone could get one of these guys, Eric Kahn or Judge Doherty, to flip, there was no way to prove it. Do either of you know anything about those cash deposits? Uh, No, sir, I don't know anything specifically about those cash deposits. Do you know, Ms. Six, about anything about those cash deposits? No, not about the cash deposits. My time is up. Thank you. With no eyewitnesses, cash deposits were still a mystery. But it was clear to investigators that Eric and Judge Doherty wanted to keep their arrangement a secret. But Chris and Andy had found a number of examples. From shredding documents. I think 26,000 pounds of documents. And then there were the strange James Bond-like purchases. There were a number of receipts from the dollar store for phones. At the hearing, Jamie and Melinda said it all started after the Wall Street Journal article came out. Can you describe what you saw in regard to what happened in those events? I don't remember us ever having a document destruction of this size. He called it spring cleaning, said he just didn't want to have any documents in the office pertaining to DB. This is a receipt from Family Dollar for a throwaway cell phone. Can you explain why Mr. Kahn would use these phones? 
He was afraid for Judge Daughtery to call the office because he said if the phones were tapped or if anyone ever looked at the phone records, they would see that they were still communicating. So he purchased a lot of these. And the reason for that was the first time they had purchased cell phones, Judge Daughtery forgot to use his track phone, so they had to throw them away and get new ones. Even though Eric and Judge Doherty thought they were being covert, most of what was going on between them was very much out in the open at the Social Security office in the eyes of Sarah and Jennifer. That much was clear from their testimony, where they explained everything they had gone through to report Doherty. Management has been allowed to harass, intimidate, oppress, stalk, discipline, ostracize, monitor, and make my life as miserable as possible for the last seven years. My family has not been the same since my employment with Huntington Odar, and financially we will never have the same amount of security that we had at that time. We have suffered loss and will probably continue to do so, but I can look at my children with a clear conscience and know that whatever happens from this, or whether any meaningful action has taken place, I did everything possible to make sure that the American public knew about it. Senators shook their heads as Sarah and Jennifer spoke. One of those senators put those SSA managers on blast. I think this is an opportunity to name all of the people within management who have been intimidators, who have been ignorers, and in, in some way, whether illegally or legally, collaborators with a system that allowed this to continue. Um. I started with a supervisor. Sarah and Jennifer listed off the names of nine other people who worked at the SSA office, in addition to Judge Doherty. Um, Kathy Goforth, Stephen Hayes, Bobby Bentley. It's the first time any of those names were made public. Former hearing office director Greg Hall um, and um, Chief ALJ Charlie Andrus. We reached out for comment to these employees who are mentioned here, but our calls were not returned, or they chose not to participate. Spoiler alert, to this day, only former Chief ALJ Charlie Andrus has been prosecuted. A few of those people were supposed to testify at the hearing that day, but the government shutdown had given the SSA office a free pass. So senators pressed all of the witnesses about other employees' involvement especially Melinda, who had provided investigators with a couple of voicemails she had received while working in Khan's office. They were from an employee at the SSA office about Sarah Carver. Hey, Melinda, this is Sandy, and I'm just going to let you know that children are going to be out of school on Monday. Hey, Melinda, this is Sandy. I'm just calling to let you know that I believe Sarah is in Washington, D.C. Apparently, I'm not sure why she's there. But uh, I thought you might want to know. After the Wall Street Journal article ran, weird things started happening to Sarah. It turned out around the same time, Eric was having Sarah surveilled to get back at her for talking to the reporter. Uh, Miss Martin, did a member of the Huntington office, Sandy Neese, place calls to you when Miss Carver would be working from home? Yes, she wanted me to let Eric know what days um, Sarah would be on her flex day. And she also called to give us directions to her home. She told us that she had a tall privacy fence. 
Was part of that a coded message? Um, yeah, a couple of messages. She would say that her children had band practice, and I don't, I don't think that she had children that actually had band practice. And did you then give that information to Mr. Khan? I did. I was really embarrassed about my part in that. I mean, it. I almost, I wanted to cry, and then I was trying really hard not to, but it was really embarrassing. It wasn't just Eric who was involved. Eric conspired with one of Sarah's superiors at the Huntington office, Chief Administrative Law Judge Charlie Andrus. He was Judge Doherty's boss, and the two hatched up this plan to get Sarah fired. Although his colleagues at the Social Security Administration didn't show up to the hearing, Charlie Andrus did. Then you, you told the IG that he was not happy with Sarah Carver. Who was not happy with Sarah Carver? Mr. Kahn. Mr. Kahn. So now, Mr. Kahn wasn't happy about your employee. So you say, hey, she's supposed to be working on a, at home on these special days where she's allowed to work at home. And he said, difficult to prove that. The only way she could be disciplined is if there was a video sent to her supervisor. So Eric Kahn said he'd be willing to hire a private investigator to check. Is that right? That's correct. And then you say, you told him, that sounds like an idea. Andrus took long pauses and looked up at the ceiling when he answered the senator's questions. In the doc series, you can see how he struggled. One of them said, you're the chief judge, the person in charge, the leader. We've listened to the first panel of witnesses talk about the way they were treated by those in a position to do something about it. And then he got personal. How would you feel if your wife or your daughter were treated that way by their employer at their place of work? I would feel badly, but Senator, I'd... Would you do anything about it? I'd find out if there are two sides to the story. What is their motivation to risk a lot to come here and really... uh, to be involved, to agree to to cooperate with the inspector generals. What is their motivation? On the... And how do you square your behavior with the golden rule? Treat other people. How does it square? I failed in a very large way on that. I failed in a very large way on that, Andrus said. We reached out to Andrus for an interview, but he wasn't interested in speaking with us. This is pretty stunning testimony, I've got to tell you. You're, You're being tracked and followed here, Ms. Carver. Have you also uh, thought about suing Mr. Khan for interfering with your employee-employer relationship? Well, a lot of this information, obviously, I wasn't privy to. It was quite shocking. It's scary. While Sarah was still processing being followed, Melinda felt like she was now in the crosshairs. Honestly, the hardest part was knowing that Eric was sitting behind me. After her testimony, Melinda got up from the witness desk and locked eyes with Eric, who was sitting next to Becky Rose. Then she hurried out of the room and headed for the restroom with Jamie. But as soon as they got inside, she realized they weren't alone. Becky followed us to the restroom. You know, they're always trying to do like something intimidating. And I could just see Eric saying, you know, follow him, go to the restroom. So she did as he told her. So I thought, This is nuts, you know? And then I thought, well, they're still at it. You know, right here in front of all these people, he's still doing this. 
Becky actually remembers it a little differently. Melinda actually accused me of following her to the restroom to intimidate her while we were there. I was like, oh my God, but, but I didn't. I really didn't. I was actually just taking Eric's wife to the bathroom. <laughs> um, but so there was this tension and the looks going back and forth. And, you know, at that time and at that Senate hearing, we're Eastern Kentucky girls, and I probably would have took them both outside and gave them what for had I had half the chance. <laughs> During this time, the next set of witnesses were up. Three of Eric Kahn's doctors were called to the witness desk. One of them was Dr. Bradley Atkins, a psychologist who had worked for Kahn. He looked neat in his khaki pants and blue button down but he was sweating through his opening statements. I'm here today to tell the truth. Um, I have nothing to hide. Um, the focus of that panel ended up becoming Brad Adkins. And in part, it was because Brad Adkins pretty much spilled his guts during that entire panel. Typically, the doctors Khan worked with were the shadier types who couldn't practice in other states because they'd had their license suspended. But Atkins wanted senators to know he wasn't like the other guys. I would take exception to uh, being painted with the broad brush. The fact of the matter is, uh, I have no storied or no checkered past. I went to Mr. Kahn. I was very young in my practice. I was... Atkins started working with Kahn in the early 2000s. Clients went to him for mental health examinations. On the other end of each exam was $350 for Atkins. He didn't have to do much but see the claimant for a few minutes, fill out a form that said whether or not the person could work based on their mental health issues. After a while working with Khan, Atkins didn't even have to fill out the forms himself. Eric Khan had them pre-filled. Why did you not fill out the entire form yourself? Because I did not... Uh, know, number one, that this was to be completed only by the professional who did this. Do you routinely fill out these forms for other lawyers that you do psychological evaluations for? Yes, sir. And do they ever send them to you pre-filled out? No, sir. These medical records are required by SSA so judges can make decisions on claimants' cases. Not only was Eric falsifying the records that Doherty was using to grant benefits, Eric was submitting carbon copies of those forms for multiple clients. Atkins' answers to questions around this were what made his testimony so stunning. You signed the forms really without evaluating them. The forms? Yes. Uh, short answer would be yes. 568 examinations. You never changed anything on those 568 no, forms. No, sir. I said I was here today to tell you the truth. It's an extraordinary acknowledgement if you didn't change one word of an analysis that you're signing your name to. We're used to people coming up and just BSing their way through a hearing, spouting off lies. Through that panel, Brad Adkins just explains how he would sign fake medical evidence and how he knew what he was doing was wrong and how he did it anyway for money. And I think in that moment, it was so jaw-dropping to see somebody admit something like that at a congressional hearing. Atkins claimed he didn't know that the forms he was signing 
were going to be submitted to the Social Security Administration. One senator pressed him on this. It, it, it's hard to uh, believe that you credibly did not believe that these would form the basis for some kind of uh, legal proceeding. At the time, I was very young in practice. I, I didn't really. And uh, Mr. Kahn's practice was very well known. He, it, it was well known in the area. It, it was well known that he did disability claims. When these were brought to me, it never dawned on me that there was anything less than legitimate about it. Man, that poor man. To Becky Rose, who was sitting in the audience, Atkins didn't look good. He wasn't the brightest crayon in the box, but um, I, I just feel like he saw a way that he could make some quick and easy money. And, and I'd like to point out that just because you're a doctor in Eastern Kentucky does not mean that you are financially well off. Um, that's just part of the story about living here, I suppose. When Atkins had finished his testimony, the hearing had been going on for three and a half hours. And senators had yet to hear from the people at the center of this controversy, Judge Doherty and Mr. Social Security himself. They were next. For Mr. Kahn, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. One of the senators welcomed the men to the front. Eric took a seat in front of his name card at the witness table. Judge da- uh, David Doherty, uh, Judge Doherty. Eric looked at the empty seat next to him where Judge Doherty was expected to sit. But Judge Doherty was nowhere to be seen. After an assistant whispered something to the senator, he leaned into the mic and said, I told by our our staff that uh, Judge Doherty was pleased to have left the room about two hours ago and has not returned. I had spoken to Judge Doherty before the hearing, and he confirmed that he was going to be there. So during the course of the hearing, there was an individual sitting in the back of the room who looked very similar to Judge Doherty. It was very strange because we had been completely convinced that this individual sitting in the hearing room was Judge Doherty. And we were fully expecting that individual to step up and walk up. When they realized that that man was not Judge Doherty, but someone who looked just like him, it sent everyone into a scramble. Here's a little clip from our doc series. There's Judge Doherty's note card sitting there with nobody sitting behind the chair. Judge Doherty, are you in the room? The entire room was completely silent. Everybody knew the stakes. We had interns running into the bathroom trying to find this guy. That just doesn't happen at a congressional hearing. No. I'd never seen somebody defy a subpoena and not show. Doherty never did show up that day. Senate investigators would have to deal with him later, though, because they had to get on with the main event. They still had Eric Kahn there to testify. And Chris and Andy had prepared for this for weeks. But as the moment approached, they received a strongly worded email from Kahn's attorney, Abby Lowell, and it said, that under DC bar rules, it was a disbarable offense to badger a witness or suggest that a witness be badgered during the course of a Senate hearing. Yeah, I mean, we interpreted it as a pretty clear brushback pitch that if we tried to ask hard questions of Mr. Khan, 
that there would be consequences for the investigators. It was a little bit stunning in the middle of a hearing to get a, um, a note like that, that it was clearly intended to try and uh, knock us back on our feet in the middle of the hearing. Chris and Andy looked toward the witness table where Eric stood. He raised his right hand and took an oath to tell the truth. The entire room was completely silent. Everybody knew the stakes. By this point, we had a lot of senators who had joined the hearing, um, many of them who had joined just because they realized what was going on and started coming to the hearing during the course of the day and now knew that this was the big moment. And so we were really bracing ourselves for a robust back and forth of questions. Everything that we knew about the guy said, I want to tell my story. And so the first question comes in. Uh, Mr. Kahn, uh, do you have any um, opening remarks you'd like to, to give, please? My lawyer, Abby Loyal, sent a letter on October 7th. And pursuant to that letter, I respectfully assert my constitutional right not to testify here today, sir. He pleads the fifth. And so we realize, okay, this is going to go a little bit differently <laughs> than we thought. The senators were silent for a moment. At that point, Eric got up and walked right out of the room. And Becky followed him out. She could only describe the hearing one way. A shit show. It was awful. <laughs> but um, then you've got these senators that are just... We called it a kangaroo court. There was no way to be right. There was no way to win that day. But at no point do I recall during that time ever doubting that he was going to beat it in the end. As far as Eric was concerned, it was a waste of time. All the senators had were a bunch of antics and no answers. They really didn't have anything on him. Here's Boyd with Khan's manuscript. Judge Darty had been ordered to appear before the subcommittee. But as always, Judge Darty flagrantly disregarded the subpoena and did not come to the hearing. Chief Judge Andrus testified. The subcommittee attacked him with vengeance. Dr. Atkins got made a fool out of by the subcommittee. Atkins drank so much water it could have flooded Noah's Ark. After his testimony, some people painted bobbleheads of Dr. Adkins and sold them at the flea market in the local area. I wonder if he ever bought one himself. If only everyone else pled the fifth, it would have saved those idiots some embarrassment. Although there would have never been any Adkins bobbleheads made, so it is a toss-up. The subcommittee threatened to jail Judge Darty for contempt of court, but like all politicians, all talk, no action. Senators did want to take further action. They were insistent that the investigation not end there and urged prosecutors to go after Eric Kahn. But that's not what happened. Instead, there were others who felt the consequences of Kahn's actions first. In the weeks that followed, Doherty made headlines for a whole other reason beyond not showing up to testify. He was found unconscious just outside his car after attempting to take his own life. It was just the beginning 
of a darker turn in the story that would have life-shattering consequences for thousands of Eric Kahn's clients. I said, what am I supposed to do? Your social security's a hound of me. Well, I don't know what to tell you. And that's what social security told me. You need to get your records and turn on me. And I said, well, they're gone. I can't find them. Well, that's your problem. It's just been devastating, all of this has. It, it sent me over an edge that I didn't want to go. He's done damage, irreversible damage, that can never be fixed. It's just affected your whole life, just your whole way of living, just everything. That's on the next episode of The Big Con, the official podcast. The Big Con, the official podcast is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by FunMeter. Don't forget the entire four-part documentary series, The Big Con, is available to stream right now on Apple TV Plus where available. This is episode three of six. A new episode will be out every Friday. The show is hosted and produced by us. I'm Brian Lazarte. And I'm James Lee Hernandez. Sean Cannon, Boyd Holbrook, Evan Miscogni, and Heather Schrering also executive produced and helped write our episodes. And Boyd Holbrook narrated Eric's manuscript moments. It was produced by Shannon Pence, who by now you should know is our amazingly talented co-EP from the documentary series. The show is engineered and sound designed by the team here at FunMeter and mixed by Ben Freer. The music from our show comes from our documentary series and was written by Brian Tyler, Josh Zimmerman, Nate Alexander, and Sarah Trevino. Additional music by Pelman Music and Sound. And make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts. See you next week. <laughs>